The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. On the one hand, this is one of the largest frauds in history. It is one of the biggest fraud prosecutions involving the cryptocurrency sector, and that weighs in favor of the sentence sending a deterrent message. Welcome back to The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm your host, Kelly O'Grady from Fox Business. All right, folks, uh, the verdict is in. Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty on all seven counts of fraud, money laundering, and conspiracy uh, one year to the day that it all started. Uh, Yesterday was actually the one-year anniversary that that Coindesk article started the rumblings of was something sinister going on at FTX. Kind of crazy that it all wrapped up on that same day one year later. Uh, So just to to run you through what happened, the jury got the case at 3.15 p.m. yesterday. Roughly four hours later, they had a verdict. I'm honestly shocked it came so quickly. Uh, it, It took a jury four days to convict Vernie Madoff, seven days to convict Elizabeth Holmes, Most of us who were at the courthouse, uh, we were expecting deliberations to last into next week. Instead, we all started scrambling when we heard there was a verdict. And minutes, I was on the air reporting it out, uh, came to a very stunning finish. No one, though, was shocked, frankly, that he was found guilty. Uh, First, when it takes such a short time for the verdict to come back, that's really a good sign for the defendant. Second, as we've recounted on this podcast, His time on the stand was really damning in the eyes of the jury, likely. Uh, This came down uh, likely to credibility of witnesses uh, in many ways. And his testimony hurt that. You know, if you were in the courtroom, it was pretty wild to see the 180 between when the defense was questioning him and when the prosecution. Now, admittedly, Sam himself didn't seem that shocked or have much emotion when he got the verdict. Uh, He's very stoic. His mom and dad, though, were choking back tears. Uh, Certainly, it was a very rough moment for them. So what's next? The defense is likely going to file an appeal. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they ask for his bail to be reinstated so he can await sentencing outside uh, of jail. Unlikely, though, that Judge Kaplan uh, would grant that, but certainly we could be shocked. But his sentencing is March 28th, and there is a potential other trial in March as well. The government, for context, can decide to go forward or forgo that now that they do have a guilty verdict in this trial. Here to break it all down, though, is someone we have had on the podcast before, Sam Enzer. He's a partner at Cahill, Gordon, and Rindell. Uh, Not only an expert in white-collar criminal defense, but also very well-versed in the crypto space. Welcome back, Sam. Thanks for having me, Kelly. So I just got to ask you, are you surprised that the verdict came back four hours later? Not at all. Um, I think that this case was, the, over, the, the evidence was overwhelming. I think the jury saw through what SBF was saying in his testimony, and even the judge gave indications. He didn't say it expressly, but he made comments implying that he thought the uh, defendant was lying on the stand. The jury wasn't fooled uh, and acted with the same speed the prosecutors did in bringing the case. They swiftly determined that he was guilty, not just on some of the charges, all of the charges. Um, And I think Judge Kaplan had a sense that this would come back quickly because he told the jurors that he was going to have dinner for them, right? That's not normal. Um, You know, ordinarily, most judges would say, look, deliberate till five and then come back tomorrow. 
but I think he had a sense that if he got dinner for them, this might be something they finish up yesterday. Right, right. Well, it's, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that he had them uh, deliberate through dinner uh, because we weren't going to meet. Court wasn't supposed to meet until today. We weren't going to reconvene until next week. So then they would have kind of been sitting with it, rattling it around their heads. Uh, he also offered car service for them to get home. Uh, they were supposed to deliberate until 8 p.m. And all of us also were wondering that we're there. We're like, hmm, the government spending extra money uh, car service, dinner, and, you know, maybe no verdict. That doesn't seem so. We, we also started to think, OK, maybe we could see something admittedly around, you know, 720 or so. I'm thinking, OK, we're, we're going to be back Monday. And then, uh, you know, I ate my words as I hopped on the phone to make plans for that evening. The verdict was in uh, 10 minutes later. But, you know, when you were last on, you shared that you thought his uh, decision uh, to testi testify, which he hadn't made it yet when we spoke to you, but it would be maybe not necessarily a smart idea, um, even if it was his only shot at convincing the jury. What did you think of that 180 that we saw on the stand? You know, he could answer questions for the defense. He was providing extra context, and then all of a sudden— uh, he couldn't remember anything. Was was that the nail in the coffin where jurors just completely lost faith? Or had they made the decision before that, do you think? Um, it's hard to know if the jurors decided he was lying during his direct. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you I closely read his testimony, and there were aspects of his direct that to me were nonsensical and could not possibly have been true or credible. Um, you know, f for example, like he knows all the details except when it involves anything that could be be uh, reflect poorly on him, and then it's suddenly it's everybody else's fault. Right. You know, ju jurors are, are wise to things like that. Um, the I, I predicted, I, I believe I predicted on this show, but certainly I've been talking on a few shows about the trial, and I I knew he would testify. wasn't a surprise, and I also said it would be bad for him that I would advise. Right. Him I don't think that was hard to see. And I, I think, unfortunately, he has made his situation worse. He has compounded the problem. Um, because now it is quite obvious. I mean, the jury's verdict, as a matter of law, means the jury determined that he was lying. Mm -hmm. you can't, you can't, the jury's verdict in and of itself is a statement that 12 people unanimously decided beyond a reasonable doubt that what he said was not true. That means he perjured himself in an attempt right. to obstruct justice and to try to win the trial. That will raise his sentencing exposure. Under the U.S. sentencing guidelines that Judge Kaplan will consider at sentencing, there are enhancements that apply for an attempt to obstruct justice, perjury, failure to accept responsibility. These things will add to his sentencing guidelines, and I expect will in the end, add to the sentence that he ultimately gets. Um, and I also think that they make it more difficult for him down the road. So, for example, I don't think that he can win an appeal. I, I don't think that okay. there was reversible error. Will he appeal? Absolutely. Um, what What does he have to lose, right? I mean, for, for almost, w why not? He's gone this far. He may as well. What, what do I expect he would appeal on? I think... The best issues he has, and I'm not saying they're meritorious, but 
the best issues that I saw relate to his testimony. So mm -hmm. in, the, in the lead up to his testimony, there was a mini hearing the judge held outside uh, of the hearing of the jury where the government got to examine him, uh, question him, uh, to determine whether or not some of his testimony would come in. And at, at, at the end of that hearing, the judge limited his ability to offer testimony about a presence of counsel defense. Right. So I, I think you'll hear him argue on appeal that he couldn't get a fair trial without presenting the jury that counsel was involved in his decisions and demonstrated his good faith and that he should get a new trial for that. And second, that it was unfair for the judge to allow the government a crack at essentially deposing him before his testimony. And that was information that gave them an advantage when they ended up having to cross-examine him. Normally, in a criminal trial, you do not get to depose the, the other side's witnesses. Mm -hmm. The government doesn't get to depose defense witnesses. They can try to speak to them, but if the witnesses don't want to talk to them, then they, then they may not get to. And in particular, a defendant testifying, um, the defense has no obligation to tell the government what the defendant's going to say, to give any uh, preview of what the defendant's statement will say. It's the one advantage the defendant has coming into a criminal trial. So I think you'll hear the defense say that on appeal. But again, I, I think those are not meritorious arguments uh, for a variety of reasons that we can get into. Yeah. So I, actually, I, wa I want to stay on the appeal uh, piece for a second because I, I spoke with uh, his attorney's PR team last night and uh, it, it's definitely looking like, as you said, you know, they will. This is very common for a defendant who's been found guilty to file an appeal. Because, Like you said, right? Like, what is there to lose? When, if ever, have you seen something like that uh, actually work in a white collar, uh, you know, crime situation? You know, is there something that comes to mind uh, or is this more just, OK, well, you know, we'll, we'll give this a try. But this is is really not something that ever works. There are certainly cases that have been reversed on appeal in white collar cases. Mm -hmm. um, for example, when I, w I used to be a federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, one of the cases I tried, I didn't do the first trial. Um, a different team did the first trial. It was reversed on appeal. And I was asked um, by Damian Williams, who was then my chief, oh. he's, he's now the U.S. attorney, uh, but he asked me to retry it. Um, and so I retried it and we got a conviction the second time. But the, the, what happened in that case, it was an insider trading case, and the, the Court of Appeals felt that the evidence was not strong, that it was a toss-up of a case, and therefore there were some evidentiary rulings that were arguably prejudicial to the defendant in the first trial. And given that the evidence wasn't overwhelming, the Court of Appeals said, we got to give this defendant another shot at hmm. a trial. Uh, that's what's known as the harmless error standard of review. The, the idea is if the evidence is overwhelming and, and an error happens, a foot fault happens in a court ruling at the trial, it's harmless because even if the ruling had come out the other way, there was so much proof you probably would have been convicted anyway. We're not going to give you a new trial. That's one of yeah. the key issues that a court of appeals will look at. And here, look, I mean, there are a variety of problems with the arguments I think the defendant I expect he'll make on appeal. I think there are a variety of flaws in those arguments, but w one of the big problems he's going to have is there was so much evidence. Three cooperating witnesses who were part of the scheme 
gave chapter and verse on how he knowingly participated in it and contradicted his testimony. Um, how do you get around that? I mean, right. w- would would him offering a full-throated presence of counsel defense really have changed that? Would it have held up? Um, so th- these are some of the hurdles that I think he'll face. What about uh, if they were going to do a Sixth Amendment rights violation? So that was a big thing leading up to the trial, that his bail was revoked. Uh I mean, admittedly, he w- he was out <laughs> for many months prior to that. So the argument was, well, you, you had all of this time to prepare your defense. Uh, but there were many weeks where we saw motion after motion from the defense saying that he didn't have access to the uh, documents that he needed to because he was behind bars and he had to have an air gap computer. Um, you know, I, I I sort of look at that and I go, well, you did, as I said, have months to prepare for this prior to your bail being revoked. But is there anything there that might give the defense traction? Bubkus. <laughs> okay. Um, look, first of all, many defendants uh, day in and day out are detained from the very first day they're charged, right? Suppose you're Fair. charged with murder um, and they are detained from the day they're charged and they're tried. Are we saying in this country you can't get a fair trial if you're detained? If that's true, then we'd have to upset a number of convictions, right? Uh, and should this guy get a better, get, should get should he get a different standard? Should he be tre- subject to a different rule uh, just because he's a white collar defendant? So these are the, the ways that a court would look at it. Now, look, I will tell you, when I was a prosecutor, I would look at arguments like that and have no sympathy for them whatsoever. Mm-hmm. As a defense lawyer, I will tell you, It is very difficult to deal with the Bureau of Prisons when your client is incarcerated. It absolutely puts you at a disadvantage. You don't get as much time with them. There are limitations on their ability to to look at materials. It's much harder to do. Do do I think in reality that it, it impairs your defense? Yes. But does that mean that he didn't have enough process to defend himself? Absolutely not. Mm. He had, you know very respectable lawyers. They had resources. They were retained. He wasn't relying on free counsel or Criminal Justice Act counsel. They had more than enough time to prepare for the trial. They made motions on his behalf. He got time with them. He had computer. The government bent over backwards to give him stuff. I don't see a court of appeals reversing on that basis. Yeah. Uh, no, it's a great context of sort of the, the prosecutor side of your mind as well as the, the defense uh, side of your mind. You brought up sentencing before, though, and I, I want to ask you a couple questions about that. Interesting perspective that the fact that he, because the jury convicted him, in effect perjured himself on the stand, could impact what Judge Kaplan throws at him. So March 28th, we are going to uh, have the sentencing hearing. What are you expecting? He faces up to 110 years across seven counts. Uh, Bernie Madoff got 150 but, you know, he was 70 years old, right? He was likely going to pass away in prison as is, whether it was 20 or 30 years or 150. On the other side of the coin, Elizabeth Holmes, she was facing 80 years and she got 11, which she's currently serving. And she was a mom or is a mom, I should say. Uh, you know, She's younger And so now I'm starting to sort of frame this up as, okay, well, Sam's 31. Uh, 
110 years would be a really long time, right? So what's your perspective? Uh, what do you think he might get? What does throwing the book at him in this case uh, mean? So sentencing in this case is extremely interesting. Um, on the one hand, this is one of the largest frauds in history. Right. Um, it is the biggest or one of the biggest fraud prosecutions involving the cryptocurrency sector. Mm -hmm. And that weighs in favor of the sentence sending a deterrent message. The judge has to think about what are we saying to society and other entrepreneurs out there about how they should behave and what could happen to them if they break the rules or lie to people to get their money. Um, on the other hand, this, you know, SBF is not somebody who committed other crimes in his life that we know of. He's young. He's 31. Um, in theory, he should be redeemable, right? I mean, is it possible that in 30 years, if he was in prison for 30 years, is it possible that when he's 61, he could be a different person who, who could add value to society? These are hard questions. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's what makes this sentencing much more challenging in many ways than, let's say, the Bernard Madoff. Madoff sentencing, on the one hand, Madoff pled guilty, um, so he accepted responsibility for his crime. Right. He actually confessed. Um, on the other hand, he had perpetrated that fraud for decades, and you know, just all manner of victims, from old widows and, and grandmothers to endowments and teachers and firefighters, you name it. Um, and so I think the challenge for Judge Kaplan will be, you know, on the one hand, punishing this conduct, and frankly, the kind of sociopathic behavior that A, allows you to do it, B, allows you to continue doing it when you have all these warning signs, and then C, in the face of all of that, still go to trial, testify, and try to lie your way out of it. I mean, those are aggravating circumstances. On the other hand, he is young, he could be redeemed. It's not going to be easy. I would expect, and, and knowing Judge Kaplan, I've tried a case in front of him. I've appeared in front of him a number of times, both on both sides um, of the aisle here. Uh, he's tough. He's not afraid to give a long sentence. You know, if, if you wanted to be in front of anybody, he is not somebody you want to be in front of as a convicted criminal defendant. I would expect a sentence north of 20 years. That's my prediction. Will he, you know, effectively put Bankman freed away for life? That I don't know. Um, that's a harder one. And in, in terms of Elizabeth Holmes, you know, there's always the factor of, number one, who's the judge? Right. Um, and, and number two, look, I think in our society, there are many documented examples of unfair treatment between men and women, right? There are many ways in which women, professional women, are not treated fairly. We can talk about compensation, other things. But one place where women do have an advantage is in the criminal justice system the same sort of stereotypes that hurt women in the workplace can work to their advantage when they're mm, defending Interesting. Um, in terms of getting leniency, a lower sentence, and the like. Yeah, I, I covered the Elizabeth Holmes trial, and that was as they were talking about her sentencing, which took a really long time, actually, to, to come about after she got the guilty conviction. 
that the fact that she was a mom and she had another kid on the way and how that would impact, you know, her child's life. But certainly that's not something to your point that anyone is thinking about when it is a, a man who has children and, and, you know, will their kids see them? So that's an interesting distinction that you draw out there. You mentioned making an example of him. And in fact, that was something that seemed to come out in uh, SDNY U.S. Attorney Damian Williams' uh, speech last night. You know, he came to the podium. We were all crowding around trying to get our, our mics up there, get a question in. And he really emphasized that this was sending a message uh, that you can't get away with this and that this, this new space, crypto, um, is no different than, than a, you know, a, a bank fraud or whatever, right? You know, fraud is fraud. So I'd, I'd love if you could just kind of expand on other examples that you might have seen where they do make an example out of uh, the defendant because of the first time something has happened or an industry. Is there anything that comes to mind that could be similar to this type of situation, this first big public fraud in crypto? It's hard to think of an example in terms of sentencing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I am defending um, a fintech entrepreneur named Ilya Dutch Lichtenstein, who was charged in probably one of the first big Department of Justice um, crypto prosecutions. He's mm -hmm. accused of um, hacking the Bitfinex exchange and laundering and stealing $4.5 billion in Bitcoin. And so that was an example of a prosecution that I think, you know, is, is an attempt to send a message. Sure. In terms of, of sentencing, a lot of these cases involving the crypto sector, particularly criminal cases, have not made their way through the criminal justice system yet. Um, like, for example, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office Southern District um, brought the first insider trading case involving digital mm -hmm. assets and um, has been a pioneer on several aspects of crime in the digital asset space, but we have not yet seen anything involving a sentence like this. You know, the closest I can think of in terms of a pending case is you've got the collapse of um, Celsius Network, right. there's a prosecution of Alex Mashinsky, the CEO, but he has not yet been tried, let alone convicted and sentenced. Um, but if you draw analogies, if you look at, if you think of this case as just a big corporate fraud, mm -hmm. WorldCom. Um, You've got, you've got the WorldCom case, um, which was, I think, Bernard Ebers. And I think he was sentenced to over 20 years mm -hmm. uh, or something in that ballpark. Um, Bernard uh, Madoff is, is a good example. Um, it's hard to find analogies to a fraud of this scale. Um, but deterrence is literally a statutory mandate. The, mm. the, the statute that tells judges what they have to consider. Title 18, United States Code, Section 3553A. One of the factors is deterrence, meaning deterrence broadly for society, which is called general deterrence, and specific deterrence. What do I have to do to deter this person from reoffending? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I, as you're going through all of these pending cases uh, and the fact that this is the very first one, that it's, it's really hard to, to find that comparison, I'm more and more wondering, oh, wow, you know, I mean, does is this used to send a message? Is it used to also 
you know, when these other cases are tried, that sort of becomes the the potential standard or the comparison that then those cases, you know, are being held up against. And so that kind of brings me to my last question for you. You also are very familiar with the crypto space. Um, what do you think the fact that there's a guilty verdict here, um, that it could potentially have a, a monster sentence against it, what do you think it does for the crypto space? You know, does it show hey, bad actors are, are moving out? Or does it bring more trepidation because of this sort of negative PR that's happening right now? I think that it's a positive sign because I think that what it send, the message it sends to the market is prosecutors will treat fraud as fraud, whether it's Wall Street or the blockchain. They have the ability to, de- to investigate it, to detect it, to prosecute it, and they will do it aggressively. And so they will not tolerate and will aggressively police market integrity in all markets, including the digital asset market. Therefore, investors, customers, consumers who want to use digital assets should have confidence that the crypto space is being policed, it's being watched, and there's going to be compliance. And there's an effort by the government to push out the bad actors, which will leave the many good actors. Uh, There are many folks who are just honest business people they're entrepreneurs, they're pursuing the American dream, and they're trying to innovate through the blockchain, through digital asset technology. And that technology holds great promise for America. Um, and and I, I am hopeful that we will all see that the bad actors are getting pushed out of this market so that the good actors can enjoy the benefits of it. Well, only time will tell on that one, but uh, Bitcoin has been doing well. So there there doesn't seem to be that, that same... I mean, we're not... Certainly not up where we were before everything started to come crashing down last summer, but uh, there does still seem to be that interest. So I am curious to see how it plays out. That's a, I have heard that from a lot of folks that are in the space, that there is the hope that this sends the message, the bad actors are being pushed out, and that the folks that remain welcome regulation, welcome transparency, and getting back to what this was all originally Uh, created for. So, Sam, thank you so much for your time today and your thoughts. Uh, You were certainly right. He probably shouldn't have testified, uh, didn't do him any any favors in the minds of the jury, but we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Kelly. Okay, folks, that does it for today. Thanks for listening and following along in the trial with us. Uh, One good thing that I'll highlight for you, customers, right? Where do they, they factor into all of this? There's a separate bankruptcy process that's happening right now. Uh, We're going to get more information in December. But right now, it looks like uh, that customers will be getting the majority of their money back uh, in that process. Certainly, there will be losses. You can't get around that. But um, definitely better than absolutely nothing. All in all, though, Sam Bankman-Fried pronounced guilty in just four hours Stunning speed uh, for those who were, were in the courtroom, but certainly unsurprising decision. That's all for now. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.